What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is episode two in my ongoing Dialogos series with John Verveke. For those of you who don't know John, he's an assistant professor of cognitive science at the University of Toronto. He's also a PhD in philosophy. Uh, I came across John's work through his excellent series with Robert Breedlove on the What Is Money show and his awesome 50-part series on YouTube called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Um, I've been really enjoying these conversations. Um, John has such a depth and breadth of knowledge and insight in the fields of psychology and philosophy and culture and religion and cognitive science. And, you know, those are contained within those fields are some of the biggest questions that we can ask and some of the most important questions for us to ask to orient ourselves properly in the world. And so I've been chewing on a lot of them lately, especially how they relate to the Bitcoin phenomenon. And uh, so I love, or I feel very fortunate to have this opportunity to ask someone like John some of these bigger questions and really get some genuinely useful insight on them to refine my own perspective. Before we get started, I just want to thank the awesome companies that support this show. The first is CoinKite, makers of the cold card hardware wallet. Look no further if you're looking for a hardware wallet to help you with your Bitcoin self-custody setup. Over at the shop at CoinKite.com, they also have a lot of other bits and pieces that help improve upon the security of your Bitcoin setup. And of course, for the hardcore Bitcoiner in you or in your life, they have some great toys like the Block Clock Mini to always keep track of the current block height or sats per dollar or to plug in an open dime and check the balance of it. It's a really cool company. They make awesome products, hardcore Bitcoiners, and I'm very grateful to have their support. Next up is Bull Bitcoin. Speaking of hardcore Bitcoiners, if you're in Canada, this is the place to buy Bitcoin. You can make an easy transfer, either an e-transfer or a wire transfer direct to your Bull Bitcoin account. Very easy to, and quick to set up. And before you make your purchase order of Bitcoin, you input your own self-custody Bitcoin receive address. And the reason for that is that when you place that purchase order, instead of the Bitcoin being custodied by the exchange, leaving yourself open to error or malicious activity on the side of the exchange, it goes directly to you, which helps to minimize your risk of anything funny happening in between buying Bitcoin and having it go into your own deep, cold storage. Of course, we all recognize that some people are a little bit intimidated by how to set up a self-custody solution properly for optimal security. And that's why these same guys started BitcoinSupport.com. So you can go there, they have a variety of options. You can choose the one that's best suited for your needs. And basically it's a white glove service. They hold your hand and make sure that you're getting your Bitcoin self-custody solution set up properly. And of course, last but not least, the Bitcoin 2022 conference going down in less than two weeks from April 6th to the 9th on Miami Beach, they're expecting 30 plus thousand people, a ton of great speakers from Jordan Peterson to Naib Bukele to Jack Mallers to Giga Chad Michael Saylor. Apparently there's lots of big announcements uh, being held back for the events. The vibe and atmosphere is incredible. You get to meet and connect with so many like-minded people, people who are there to contribute to and to learn about and to support and to celebrate the cause of freedom that Bitcoin represents. It's amazing. And if you have some energy left over on the last day, there's a music festival so you can get your freak on a little bit. At checkout, use the code RAPIDFIRE to get 10% off your ticket, and I'll see you there. Let's do it. John, it's uh, great to be back in the courtyard of Dialogos with you. How are you? I'm good, John. Thank you for uh, welcoming me back. I appreciate being here. Um, we had a great chat last time. I listened to it back uh, 
this morning and then a, a, a week or two ago. And I really enjoyed some of the topics we hit on, and I want to continue a few of them today. And, you know, of course, we can jump around as, uh, as the conversation flows. But <clears throat> one of the things that we said we put a pin in was how some of the themes we were discussing impact culture. And then also, you know, I'm very interested in one, how culture is constituted, how we might, how we judge whether or not a culture is quote unquote properly constituted, what we mean when we say that. Yeah. And to what degree does culture influence many of the themes we were discussing? So, just as an example, last time we were talking about, you know, the ineffable apex pure consciousness events and the sort of mundane day to day life. And, what is the relationship between the two and how should we constitute a relationship between the two? Um, but of course, our experience of consciousness, the, the way we construe and derive meaning, the way we articulate ourselves is very much culturally, uh, not defined, but culturally determined in many ways. And yes. so basically what I, I'd like to discuss today or, or start the discussion with is what is the role of culture in our experience of consciousness and mm. how should we attempt to mediate that properly you know so like when we talk about these pure consciousness events is there consciousness without culture and if not uh what should what is the optimal way to construct culture so that it serves consciousness and vice versa i guess is, is something like that kind of a question yeah very good question a uh, very controversial question, so I'll, I'll do my best to make a plausible argument. Uh, but Let's I want it understood go. that there's people who I respect who have very alternative views to the one I'm going to argue for here. Uh, <laughs> I sometimes say uh, consciousness is more controversial than God. Um, so I, I do think there's consciousness without culture for what I think is, a, I think should be a relatively uncontroversial although there's some, still some controversy around it, claim, which is I think animals have consciousness. Now we have to not confuse consciousness and self-consciousness. You have a self-awareness of yourself. You're aware of your consciousness. You're aware of your consciousness as consciousness, right? You are aware of yourself as a self, right? And um, there's good evidence that even animals, even some animals have self-consciousness, those that pass the mirror test, express uh, long-term mourning, grief, uh, et cetera, uh, things like that. Um, um, and so that gives me strong reason to believe they have self-consciousness and a necessary condition for self-consciousness is consciousness. And because a lot of their behavior, uh, especially the more intelligent animals, demonstrates the same kind of cognitive flexibility that we demonstrate when we're using consciousness, namely the ability to solve novel, complex, ill-defined problems, experience insight. Um, it, it's difficult, but I think there's growing, there's a recent article reviewing it. I think there's growing uh, consensus that we can find behavioral evidence for insight in at least some uh, animals um, and birds. Uh, birds are, Caledonian crows are wickedly smart. Uh, and they do things to, and this is another piece of evidence, they seem to do things to alter their state of consciousness. They will tumble down roofs in order to make themselves dizzy so they feel sort of intoxicated. And elephants will eat fermented fruit so they get stoned, right? The fact that they're altering their state, of, what's the most plausible explanation for that? They're altering, they're altering their state of consciousness and there's a drive to do it, which means there's an inherently self-transcending aspect 
at least self-varying aspect of the consciousness. So I think the evidence uh, for consciousness without culture, I think, because um, I take it that animals don't have culture. Chimps maybe have a very, very primitive culture, uh, but other organisms, no. Um, so I think for me, uh, that's a pretty strong argument that we can have consciousness without culture. That lends, for me, significant plausibility to the proposal that we can achieve a state of consciousness that would be the state of consciousness we were in if we weren't cultural beings. Uh, this is what Foreman actually claims the pure consciousness event is. He claims that the pure consciousness event, precisely because it lacks conceptual and categorical content, can't possibly be influenced by culture, because that's the way in which culture, he argues, is mediated uh, to us. Putting those two together, um, I think it's plausible both that there's consciousness uh, without culture in animals, and insofar as we are still animals, it, it seems reasonable, given all the evidence for the PCE, that we can't, pure consciousness event, that we can also experience consciousness without culture. Um, now, this is the ongoing battle between the perennialists and um, uh, the constructivists. However, I do think that that's about as far as that goes. Um, um, I do think that there are ways in which culture is mediating our experience of consciousness in terms of the cultural cognitive grammar that is given to us. For example, just to take a few interesting phenomenological side notes, when you ask people where their consciousness is, it's, you can do this as an experiment, they sort of point here and about in the intersection of the axis between your temporal, you know, temporal area and uh, sort of third eye and somewhere where those two axes cross, that's where my consciousness is. Mm -hmm. uh, if you would ask an ancient Egyptian, well, first of all, they wouldn't have the notion of consciousness which is very important. Let's remember that, we'll come back to that. But if you ask them where their soul was, at least one of their souls, they would have pointed to their liver. Um, so um, even where we think it is, <clears throat> seems to be culturally mediated because most of this is not something we're actually perceiving, it's something we're projecting via culture. Um, the very notion of consciousness, I, you might be able to argue that some of the Neoplatonists had it, but our notion of consciousness and the word doesn't really come into prominence until after Descartes. And then we have, and then we have the notion of consciousness as inherently subjective and inside of us. That is not universal. It's not even universal for our historical civilization, right? So a lot of the stuff we think is that we perceive about consciousness, like where it is and that it's somehow inside of us and it's a purely subjective as opposed to an objective thing. Those, those things that we think we are perceiving in the nature of consciousness, you can make very good arguments are actually historically, culturally constituted. And it becomes so internalized into our cognitive grammar that we just think automatically that that's the way it is. Before I go on with, you know, before I continue with some other questions on this, do you have a particular perspective on the nature of consciousness, where it resides, how it's received yes. or something like that? Yes, I do. It's, it's a long argument because <laughs> consciousness is not an easy topic. And sure. Epi Ugi and I are, 
about to try and submit a paper for publication. Um, let, let, me, let me try and talk about a couple of dimensions. First of all, when you're talking about consciousness, you have to talk about two different things, but you shouldn't talk about them separately. You have to talk about, there's two big questions. What's the function of consciousness? What does it do? Why is this a problem? Because most of your intelligent behavior is done without your consciousness. You're understanding my language right now. You're not consciously aware of any of the processing that is somehow taking these acoustical signals and turning them into thoughts. It just, you just, in fact, you just see me speaking this meaning to you. That's how unconscious and transparent this process is to you. So most of your very, very complex intelligent processing is being done without consciousness. So what's consciousness for? Uh, what's its function? And then the other, con the other question is, what's the nature of consciousness? What kind of entity is it? Is it a physical thing, a non-physical thing, et cetera? Now, one of my criticisms of a lot of current work on consciousness is they try to address these questions in isolation from each other. You'll get theories about the nature of consciousness and theories about the function of consciousness. And I think Descartes was right, at least about the idea that those two questions are interdefining. You can't really talk about the function of something unless you have some good idea of its nature. You can't really talk about the nature of something unless you know how it acts, how it functions in the world. So I think treating these two as separate is one of the sort of methodological, pervasive methodological mistakes. People will say it's easier. Yeah, that's like saying it's easier to get to the moon by climbing a tree, as Dreyfus said. But it seems easier, but it's just not the right way to go about it, right? Ease of solving a problem isn't always a good heuristic. Mm. So what I propose is where do we look like there's some consensus and then use it to bridge? I think there's an emerging consensus about what consciousness is for, what its function is. Uh, consciousness is about dealing with situations that have high degrees of novelty and or complexity and or ill-definedness. That is also convergent with a lot of arguments, some of them explicit, some of them directly implicit, and I could make this argument in more detail, that many of the major, especially the cognitive scientific and neuroscientific theories of consciousness, the function of consciousness, are zeroing in on, or converging on, maybe even better said, the proposal that consciousness does relevance realization. It helps us, what we talked about last time, zero in on the relevant information. That's why we need it for situations that are highly novel, highly complex, highly ill-defined, because that's where relevance realization and the ability to home in on it become really, really central. This also helps to explain something which we all sort of know, and we're trying to get it clear about it, but nevertheless, there's deep overlap between consciousness, attention, fluid cognition, and working memory. Well, what does working memory do? It's, uh, I, I think Lynn Hasher's right. It's a relevance realization filter. That's why chunking information gets things through the working memory bottleneck. Fluid cognition, so you're online dealing with current situations, right? Attention, attention's very much about relevance realization. So you can, I think you can build a very powerful argument that consciousness is for relevance realization. That now allows me to answer, answer one of your questions. Where is consciousness? It's not in your head. Where's relevance realization? It's not in your head. It's between you and the world in that dynamic, evolving fashion we were talking about last time. It's much more important to see consciousness as between the embodied brain and the world 
than in your head or in the brain. That's why we can't find a neural correlate for consciousness. We keep saying, oh, consciousness is here. Look at all the evidence. And then we, it gets disconfirmed. No, no, consciousness is here. And then we, we get some of the evidence and then it's disconfirmed. That keeps happening. What Given can we that, say about the, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. <clears throat> well, I was just going to say, oh, you go ahead, John. <laughs> I was just going to, I was just going to ask or, or kind of throw a, a wrench in that, not a wrench, but to say, if it's that kind of participatory thing, it's not in one place, yeah. it's created as a result of two forces yep. or multiple forces happening. Where and where, and, and this may be, maybe we want to address this after, but where and what is value? Cause we kind of explored last time the, yep. yeah. uh, the, how value functions in helping us mediate that process and determining action and all of that kind of stuff. And so if value is not exclusively subjective, you know, that's the, the common yeah. refrain, but if we're saying that consciousness is not exclusively not ex subjective, okay. then value perhaps may not be either. Right. So let me, let me try and build to that. So let's go back to the pure consciousness event. A lot of the stuff that we tend to put a lot of attention on and talk about consciousness, like the, the greenness of green and the blueness of blue and the sweetness of the orange and, and things like that. Um, those are adjectival qualia. Uh, they're, they're, they're basically telling us sort of um, what, but let's pay attention to, well, let's, first of all, let's pay attention to attention. This is a great, great argument made by Christopher Mole. We try to treat attention as it's of a thing we do, a direct thing we do, like a spotlight we shine on things. But that's not how attention works, right? You, attention is like, it's not like walking. When I say walking, you can directly do it. Attention is like the verb training or practicing. When I say train, you say train what? When I say practice, you say practice what? Notice this is how you pay attention. You pay attention by turning seeing into looking or hearing into listening or by coordinating seeing uh, hearing and listening, or by coordinating hearing, listening, and working. There isn't one thing you do to pay attention. Attention is adverbial. It's a way in which you, like practicing or training, it's a way in which you are modifying uh, something else you're doing. And what you're doing is bringing more, what Mole calls cognitive units into it. You're getting all of its components more to share, a, to find something in common as relevant. So you're trying to get your looking and you're hearing to find this equally relevant. Does that make sense? And you see why that lines up with consciousness. Consciousness is adverbial. You know what goes away in the pure consciousness event? All the extra, all the extra adjectival qualia. There's no categories. There's no concepts. There's no greenness. There's no blueness. There's nothing. But the adverbial qualia remain because the pe people don't black out. They, they feel... They'll, they'll say things like pure unity, pure presence, eternity. Listen to what they're saying. They're saying here-ness, now-ness, togetherness. All the adverbial properties are still there. That part of attention is the necessary and sufficient conditions for attention, I would argue. So what does that say? That says that that property of making relevant and finding salient that we experience in consciousness is actually between us in the world in a fundamental way. So valuing is a way of aspectualizing the world so that it is relevant to us 
and shaping our identity so we're relevant to it so that a, per, a certain kind of sensory motor interaction now becomes possible with the thing that we value. Look, relevance realization is not cold calculation. When I find this relevant, I'm paying attention, right? I am, right, I, I, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm caring about this information rather than that information over there. I'm caring about it, right? I'm, I, I, my, my, my very precious resources of attention, cognitive processing, time, opportunity are being, are being gambled on this, making this more salient to me. And that is not some, that's not an add-on to cognition and an awareness of the world. That's the very way in which we are aware of anything. Even our most objective observation has that relevance realization in it. We're caring about the information coming through the telescope about the sun rather than what is happening underneath my feet in the grass I'm standing on and the telescope is sitting on. That's always happening. And so is back to the question about culture and you can almost relate this to the analogy used with your glasses or uh, in the last conversation you see by way of your glasses right you're yes. seeing through your glasses and in a, in a sense you're the same is happening for culture so culture is mediating the relevance realization it's it's yes if, if not yes. entirely determining it but it's very much influencing what you put your attention on and how that narrowing happens for your relevance realization. And, you know, we finished the last conversation by saying, we talked about virtuosity and kind of the, yeah. you use the analogy, which I thought was great of the fighting stance and the fighting stance yeah. is not applicable to any strike. It's a, it's the best point to move between all strikes, right? Some, yes. Something like that. And so if, if we, and we were relating that to consciousness, what's the optimal base consciousness let's say or base perspective to engage whatever aspect of ourselves i think you maybe the term you use was agency um yeah, yeah. constellation of agency uh what what's the best starting to point to engage whichever one is the most uh appropriate in any given moment and we i think we yeah. quoted um uh who was it can't remember right now but basically they were saying you know Anger is not bad, but you, you want to be anger for the right reasons. Aristotle? Yeah. yeah, for the right reasons at the right time in the right degree or the right amounts. And so my kind of what I've been trying to determine with, with culture is, okay, if we accept that culture has a great degree of influence on consciousness um, and how our relevance realization is constituted or influenced, what is the... To what degree does it influence the starting point, the optimal starting point of consciousness, so that we can move into whatever aspect of ourselves, whatever that's necessary for the moment? You know what I'm trying to say? Like, how do we? I do. I do. How do I we do. not have it? How do we have it influence us optimally? I guess. Now that's that's a really great question. Um, you can think about the four C's. You can think about cognition which is basically your intelligence machinery and that's a lot of it's happening unconsciously as we've already said but it's still doing relevance realization when you're trying to remember you don't search through all your memory your brain unconsciously goes to the most relevant information to the situation at hand it's a miracle uh practically right and that's why getting that reconstructive re selective memory into ai is is difficult it's challenging there's your consciousness which we've talked about 
there's something we've all, we've talked about a little bit, which is your character, which is the set of virtues that you've cultivated. And then there's your communitas, how you are plugging into and also being shaped by distributed cognition. We talked about the fact that a lot of our problem solving is done in concert with other people. Um, so all four of those are, as you said, mediated by culture, but all four of those also have to, are shaped by relevance realization and the way the, those four also interact with each other. Your consciousness shapes your character, your character constrains your consciousness, et cetera. So first of all, so what I'm proposing Aristotle's talking about and what that sort of optimal grip is, it's not just an optimal grip of our consciousness. It's a sort of meta-optimal grip. It's like getting the right place, the right alignment between consciousness, cognition, character, and community that gets the right alignment between the right propositional knowing, procedural knowing, perspectival knowing, and participatory knowing. By the way, I would say that uh, consciousness is the participatory knowing of and through our perspectival knowing. That's what I think we're, con how con so consciousness is already starting the aligning process. So what you're trying to do is get this sort of optimal alignment between, and of course, there's no one place. You're constantly trying to find the best place, like the fighting stance for all of those. Now, that process is transjective. Like I said, it's not in you, it's between you and the world. And your response, so that process is, is evolving with respect to different environments. And, and when we, I can, I can analytically separate them, but for most of my life, they're not separate. There's the physical environment, the biological environment, and the cultural environment. But look at the room you're in. Which one of those is it? Is it a purely physical environment? That's ridiculous. You're in a house. Nature doesn't assemble things that way. Human beings did it. So you're surrounded by culture. Is it just a cultural and physical environment? Obviously not. It's biological. There's air there. If you didn't have air, you'd die, right? So all three environments. So your brain is also trying to shape all of those. And because culture has this wonderful way of permeating the other two, your brain is constantly evolving its relevance realization or the four C's, the four kinds of knowing in a really complex way to try and get you optimally gripped on that. That means, John, this is a long way of saying, I can't give you like a simple answer to that question because, because it's so complex, multidimensional, you have, you have to think about the fact, like very complex systems, very high dimensional require a lot of energy and effort to maintain them because it, there's there's a lot of potential entropy in them. They can collapse quite readily. And so to put this more simply, there's a lot of ways in which that can go wrong. In fact, it's a miracle in some ways that it goes right to the degree it does. So our culture is constantly trying to shape our consciousness, our cognition, our character, and our communitas. It's constantly trying to shape the alignment between the four kinds of knowing. For example, I argue our culture over-prioritizes the propositional at the expense of the other. Our culture over-prioritizes the salience of certain things, I think like wealth and subjective well-being, at the expense of meaning. So there's ways in which right, it shapes the salience landscape. And then if we understand what that means, it, it's, it's going into all four C's, 
all four kinds of knowing and, uh, and misaligning them or aligning them in multiple different ways. And so cultures have a lot they can play with. That's why cultures can vary so much. And, and that's a good thing, by the way, because the environment, the historical and the uh, uh, physical and biological environments vary considerably. So you need those, that you need that evolvability of culture. But on the other hand, it means there's lots of ways in which we can get misaligned with between the four C's and the four P's. Sorry, I know you wanted a simpler answer, but that that's kind of no, the answer no. I feel. I, no, I, I, I don't want to... I don't want a simple answer. I want I want the answer that come that comes through. But you know, the reason why I'm so fascinated by this is because you know, for many years, my one of my objectives or things that I've been working on, and we discussed it last time as well, is like you come up within a culture, and yes. the con you're basically bombarded by the conditioning inherent in that culture be it familial yes. or religious or national or what have you. And broadly speaking, this is overly simplistic. My, you know, initial thought 20 years ago, or whenever you become curious, self-aware, whatever, if you're a teenager, 20s, university, whatever, is, oh, like I'm at, at core, I'm not my culture, right? And, and I've, I've adopted certain elements of the culture to maneuver it and move through it more smoothly to my benefit. But I have to be careful about, that relationship, because if I just become like a cultural automata, how conscious am I? How much agency do I really have? How much, how in control am yes. I really? And so, and you know, um, various practices, psychedelics, meditation, spontaneous mystical experiences, all this kind of stuff have a, a way of deconditioning for a time, or at least yes. allowing you to see what yes. conscious experience is like absent that, that conditioning. You step outside yourself for a moment uh, or for a period of time. Um, and so given that I, you know, I, I, I pretty much believe that that's the case that you want to be aware of your conditioning and then you can selectively either engage it or use it yeah. or discard it or not. But the, the juicy question here is, okay, you, you come up and you're both a cultural and a divine being for lack of a better term, yeah. let's say, which, which elements of the culture should I be aware of and discard which elements of the culture actually help facilitate my my the engagement you know, like my optimal engagement with myself you know what i mean because the culture gives us yeah, the language no. the concepts the ideas all that stuff for me to relate to myself properly such that i can engage the world in the term on the terms that i want to but there's also elements of it that i want to make sure don't derail me or delude me and so i i try to cast them out and so what are we What's on the chopping block and what's, what do we want to integrate more in that process? Excellent. So let's first of all talk, make one quick methodological point. Uh, don't confuse indispensability with necessity. So for me, because I'm monolingual, right? I did not create language. Language, I, well, language is enculturated into me. And a lot of my thinking depends on language. Literacy, a psychotechnology was enculturated into me. A lot of my cognitive. A lot of my cognition, my problem-solving abilities depend on language and literacy, right? And mm -hmm. so that's indispensable to me. Is it necessary for a human being to speak English and to be literate? Of course not. There are billions of people who do not speak English, and there have been, you know, hundreds of thousands of years in which there wasn't literacy. So although it's indispensable to me, it's not a necessity. That's the first thing, right? So don't confuse the fact that something is indispensable to you with you making universal claims about, right, that, or that, you know, culture 
is, is these cultural things are absolutely necessary. Obviously, they're not. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe even language isn't necessary for culture. Again, there's some people who argue that chimps have culture, at least a very primitive kind of it. I want to okay, come back so, to this, but yeah, go ahead. Okay, so that that's an important thing. The second thing is to remember contra cultural relativism, which I think is an incoherent position. I think cultural pluralism is a real thing. Cultural relativism, I think, is incoherent. Right? You have to remember that there has to be some transcultural ability or pre-cultural ability that allows you to learn a culture. You don't come with a culture, you come ready to learn a culture. So there's obviously all this, again, animal level relevance realization machinery, and it doesn't go away. Given everything we've already said before, it's not a ladder. We don't leave all that animal relevance realization behind. So that non-cultural, transcultural, which we can access, like you said, in the pure consciousness event, that's always available to us. Second one, you have to have something that's translinguistic, transcultural, because you're able to learn other languages. You're able to go to other cultures. In fact, an, another way of becoming aware of your cultural lens is through history and anthropology. Go live in another culture. Go learn deeply about another time, right? And that loosens the identification of the indispensability with necessity. You realize, oh, I see how this is indispensable to me but I realize it's not necessary. There are other possible ways. And then what you have to do very carefully, right? And then I'll come back to your point, John. What you have to do really carefully is you have to say, okay, given these, all, given these possibilities and given the animality that is pre-cultural, transcultural, what's a good theory for putting them together? And I've tried to propose that something like relevance realization does that. It's analogous to evolution. Evolution is a universal process, but it doesn't produce the same organism. In fact, if you understand evolution, because it's adaptation is between the organism and the environment, what you're going to get is an ever-grading proliferation of the differentiation of species. So there's a universal process. It doesn't mean there's a homogeneity of product. So now, think about that. That means there's something in terms of which we can judge between the various right cultural products. We can say, well, since they're all ultimately grounded in the relevance realization and the way it impacts the four C's and the four P's, we can evaluate cultures on how well they are helping people enhance their relevance realization and align their consciousness, their cognition, their character, their communicast, and align the four P's. In other words, what we can say is, and now I can put it into kind of a slogan, but you have to put all of what I just said into this, you can evaluate cultures on how wise they're making their participants. How many of them are systematically, reliably, individually, and collectively reducing self-deception and enhancing flourishing? Seems to me that's a very good criteria by which we can evaluate things. Yeah, I I agree, and it makes me wonder. Or you know, the next question that comes up in my mind is: Has this been the enterprise of religion or spirituality to try to foster that to the extent possible? And then, of course, the the kind of slippery slope is that perhaps the answer, if the answer is yes to that question, and it actually is the the most useful means of, of establishing that, well, at what point does it become 
part of the, and this is a bit harsh, but cultural detritus that actually detracts from that enterprise based on the shifting landscape of the natural world or the cultural world yeah. or, or yeah. evolution yeah. more uh, broadly. Yeah. Um, and then, and, and just the, well, actually let's, let's go with that first. So it, has that been the enterprise of religion? And then, and, and this is kind of, you know, again, to yeah. harken back to some of Peterson's work that, or home and horror, as you call it, not chaos and order or order and chaos, but it is that kind of propensity for home to be established, to be safe, to be comfortable, to be like, yeah, this is, this is the, the, the fighting stance that's optimal right now. And then things change as they always do. And maybe the, that fighting stance is no longer optimal, yep. but you hold yep. on to it because it's familiar and comfortable. And that's yes. when cultural becomes culture becomes quote unquote, not your friend, and it needs revivifying, which is the idea yep. of the reunifying or revivifying hero. But yep. you, you I, run I, with it. Okay, I agree with that. Uh, let's remember, like you said, the sacred is between, the sacred is, the optimal grip isn't home. The optimal grip is between home and horror. Uh, home is assimilation, horror is accommodation, and religions are constantly trying to toggle between those. Now, the problem with religion, uh, sorry, the problem facing religion, I shouldn't say the problem with religion. The problem facing religion is, What's the rate at which we should change this stuff? Great question. Right? Um, and so, so part of what, if you'll allow me to use a little bit of a computational metaphor, part of what gets built into the code of religion is right a, a, a sort of a refresh rate. Um, what's the rate, right? And you can even see this in, uh, you know, in, in the discourse of, of some of my, my, my friends in, in this corner of the internet, uh, as Sevilla King calls it. So Paul Vanderclay talks about, you know, politics is about the now, religion is about the always. That's kind of right. And there's something profound there, but it's kind of, I, I push back a bit on Paul. So there's a professor in Nova Scotia, which is also in Canada, uh, by the way, selling back, he talks about the fact is it really the case that religion is plugging into things that are always, uh, I, I mean, maybe always since the Axial Revolution, but I'll come back to that. I think that's even problematic, right? Religion isn't really about the always, because Sellingback points out, we've had probably something like religion for 30,000 years. And we really haven't got to the same kind of consensus about the spiritual world that we have with our perceptual consensus about the physical world. And think about how much evolution it took to get that machinery in us, right? At his point, so he makes the argument, and let me buttress this with an argument from Hicks, for what he calls spiritual immaturity. The most plausible hypothesis about us is, and, and he means this as a species, doesn't mean this like an individual comparison, is that we're actually spiritually immature. We're, the spiritual questions are the deepest, hardest questions that are posable in reality. Therefore, they are probably the ones that are going to take the most amount of time and the most amount of biological and cultural evolution to address. Look at how much time it's taken even to get to where we are in science. And we're aware that we're still very far away from the answer, right? Add that to the fact, John Hicks's argument, the, uh, the meta argument, the, world, the universe seems spiritually ambiguous to us. We can't seem to decide if there's a God or if there's not a God, if there's a spiritual dimension or if there's not. Put those two together. Spiritual ambiguity, yeah, that's what you'd expect if we were spiritually immature, right? They reinforce each other. They converge on each other. So 
the proposition that we've got it right, either really right, the theist, or all those propositions are really wrong, the atheist, those are actually the most improbable claims to make. Those are the most improbable claims to make. So what should we do? Well, we should have a stance towards the, the real possibility of the transcendent in which we are most open to its possibility and also most ready to evolve in order to meet the emergence of new information. For me, that's the Socratic tradition that goes from Socrates to Eregina of an Eckhart done uh, a Nicholas of Cusa of cultivating profound learned ignorance or profound learned ignorance where you get to that state of profound and, and, and let's be let's be clear and Eckhart is really crystal clear on this you don't get to learned ignorance from ignorance it's not privative you only get to learned igno learned ignorance by going through the depths of what you think you know this is very similar to the Eastern claim. You don't get enlightenment by seeking, but only those who seek it find enlightenment. Right? Mm -hmm. That's the place you need to be. And I think the degree to which religions and cultures can maintain a proximity to that Socratic ideal, this is an argument I'm making because it's a prescriptive thing you're asking me, the degree to which they're not, they will not be accumulating much of that detritus. To the degree to which they are far from that Socratic ideal, they will be drowning in it um, in a way in which they are being so starved and, and submerged by it that they're becoming unaware of what they've lost. I argue that we're very far from that Socratic ideal in our culture and in our established religions. Although there's variations within all the religions, there's some aspects of Buddhism that are more like this, some aspects of Christianity, they're more like this. But for me, that's, again, the touchstone. That's the touchstone, because that place is the optimal grip place between home and horror. That's the place where you're hitting the sweet spot, where you're most, where you're trying to preserve not the traits that you've evolved, but your evolvability, the meta-trait. That's what you're focusing on. Right. And it, my interpretation of at least, you know, uh, the Judeo-Christian hero character or the hero character of many religions is trying to communicate something like that, trying to communicate like that mediate mediatory force, that forever vivifying force is actually the thing to focus on, not the certitude of the quote unquote God character or the certitude of the individual and their reason and logic, but that mediatory force. And, you know, as you're saying this, it seems to me that uh, if, if, we're, if we're talking about home and horror and how there's a propensity, it seems, to, you know, overinvest or over lean on the home aspect and, and engaging in this, like, um, you know, a practice of, I can't remember the, the term you use, but like, never being certain, kind of always seeking and that sort of yeah. thing. Like, it seems like a, a courage is required from that because you're, yeah. you're yeah. hanging yeah. out more in the realm of horror. You're not fully in it. You're not taken away by it, but you're willing to either hang on the perimeter or dive back in intermittently and con constantly to 
for the very reason that you realize that this needs to be revivified, you know, and to the, to the point of uh, religion and, and those that make the claim that, you know, it's the always is and culture is the forever changing or the individual is forever changing, something like that. You know, I think, I think a simple maybe uh, look at anthropology in our own historical, in our own history kind of reveals that we engage the artifacts of culture, let's say language and symbolism and, you know, yeah. all the other things that culture conjures up to actually convey what is by some claim to be the always is right. The, the quote unquote yeah. religious narrative or story. So, I mean, if you agree that culture evolves and that seems to be inarguable and we can, we can, I want to discuss later the quality of that evolution and, and, and the subjective analysis of that, let's say, but if we agree that it does evolve and language expands and meaning expands and symbol and all this kind of stuff, then presumably you'd have to admit that the, the thing that we're trying to use those artifacts to describe will at least necessarily become more refined over time because we're, we have available to us better means of communicating and conveying meaning. Yes. That. Yeah. I think, I think it's, uh, I think that's right. Uh, I want to go about two, three, to a couple of points. Um, I think the hero myth is important. And like you said, it mediates. I think one of the criticisms I would make about how the hero myth has been taken up, uh, and I'd like to discuss this with Jordan, some, uh, Jordan Peterson at some point, because um, I've pointed out that like this, the Greek myths, for every hero myth, there's a myth of hubris. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, you know, Arachne and there's all these, uh, you know, there's all these myths. There's Pandora. There's all these myths of Icarus. There's the myth of hubris. And so the hero myth and the hubris myth are meant to be kept in tension with each other. Right. Um, uh, Because the problem with the heroic myth is it can become it can it can be seeking. Right. a, a, A. I, I, I want to use a biblical term. It can become blasphemous. Mm. It can become blasphemous. Um, and so, right, the hero myth is always to be counterbalanced with the hubris myth. So the point of the hubris myth is to remind us, no matter how heroic we get, we remain humans. We remain mortals. Um, and so to me, to my mind, the heroic courage is all of our attempts to know and the hubris is the recognition, right, that ultimately we get back to the horizon of wonder. We get back to the horizon of learned ignorance. So for me, notice, by the way, how our culture is hungry for horror. We like the, like the everything's dark. Like people will say to me, oh, I love it. It's so dark. On the TV show, and I'm thinking, okay. Why is that good? Like, why is why is dark? Like, what's horror? There's elements of horror and dark and right. And 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 so I think that points to the fact that we recognize uh, that we 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 need some frame breaking right now. I think what Paul meant to go back and defend Paul a little bit from my criticism, he meant that religions do change, but the rate of change is much slower. They do change. They do evolve. Paul would admit he has to. He's a Protestant. He has to admit there's a difference between <laughs> Protestant Christianity and, and Catholicism, right, etc. I mean, that's the whole mm-hmm. basis of the Protestant Reformation. 
right? And so Paul would acknowledge that. He would acknowledge that the axial age religions are different. Like there's not just refinement. I'm going to use a Cunian analogy. There's not just refinement. There's also revolution. There was the actual revolution. There was the Protestant Reformation, which is really the Protestant revolution, right? So there are also revolutions in, in religion too. The problem we have is we have an end of history myth. We do it individually. John, we do it individually. This is how we do it individually. You ask people, how much did you change in the last 10 years? And they'll say, oh, I changed a lot. I changed a lot. How much are you going to change in the next 10 years? Oh, I'm not going to change very much. This is it. I'm done. And what's really funny is you can do this every 10 years. And they'll say every time, I changed a lot in the past 10 years, but I'm not going to change very much in the next 10 years. And we do the same thing with our religious past. Oh, we've changed a lot, but we're not going to change very much. I think that's just an illusion, to, not to be too harsh, but that's an illusion. It's, it's the same illusion we carry around as individuals. And it's like, no, selling back is right. If I were to try and predict what religion is going to look like in 3,000 years from now, I'd be a fool. Imagine 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, you're in ancient Egypt. And you're going to predict from the framework of ancient Egypt what Protestant Christianity? No way. You can't predict things that way. Um, and so we should, and here's the thing I want to say, going back to something we said before. Religion should, can make an argument. I'm not, I'm not sure they can make this argument, but at least they sh what they should do is saying, well, at least a lot of our current religion is indispensable but it's not necessary. Religion may be something fundamentally different a hundred years from now. But just like I can't think without English, I can't move around in the world unless I'm a Christian. When people make that argument, and people are increasingly making that argument, in fact, Paul Vanderclay is making that argument, and I think Jonathan Pajot does in certain ways, right? Then I, then I basically have nothing, I have, no, I, ha, I have nothing to say. Because if they're honest about that, they can't foreclose on what's coming. Here's my final response to that response, which I respect, by the way. It's just like, okay, then the way we, dis the way we, we justify indispensability is how functional it is. When you say something is indispensable, you have to show me how functional it is. You have to show me that it's meeting the criteria we talked, the criterion, or maybe criteria we talked about earlier which is how much is it helping people to cultivate wisdom and meaning individually and collectively, balance between home and horror, balance between individuation and participation in distributed cognition. How good a job is it doing at that? How good is it doing at evolving right now to a, this is Jordan Hall's argument, to a rapidly accelerating change that's happening in our culture because of hyper-technology. And to my mind, although I don't have a deductive argument to say, look, here's the proof. The current traditional religions, can they, they can point to individual successes. Here's a person within the religion that's cultivating genuine wisdom and meaning. Here's another. But on average, on mass, they're not doing a good job. They're not doing a good job. They are not places that most people, the fact that, like, when I ask my students, where do you go for wisdom? Most of, them, most of them are silent. They know the religious institutions are out there, but they do not. those institutions and traditions do not strike them as viable places to go. It's not even that they consider it false. They're just like, it's irrelevant. 
And you know what? Uh, you know what? You, you can't be if you're a religion. You can't be irrelevant, right? Mm. Yeah. One, I, one more thing. One more thing in their defense. Sure. I, I want to be very clear because I have to be honest. Like, there's good evidence. Former TA and RA and uh, uh, of mine, right? He's done research showing that if you cultivate wisdom within a religious tradition, you do better than if you're in a secular framework. But which means the, that shows what the religious functionality was for, to my mind. Mm. But there's no significant difference between the various religious traditions. So if you're a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim, you all do equally well. So it's not the content of the religion. It's not the propositions. It's the skills and the virtues and the states of consciousness and the traits of character. Yeah, and I think it could be that on a base level, a lot of those religions share similar themes even though maybe higher up you know and in, in, in as they institutionalize they they differentiate more and and people interpret them more literally and that's where maybe things go astray but in terms of how one is expected to or is it even compelled not by coercion but by truth in some sense to adhere to these things maybe that's part of the benefit that's bestowed on people by doing so when they seek wisdom yeah. within them. Because, you know, my, one of the things that I've been <clears throat> thinking about and, and talking about a little bit lately is, I mean, I, there's a reason why religions as they are today have been falling out of favor for the last hundred yeah. years or so, let's say. Um, yeah. But the de facto response in the modern era in, you know, let's say the, the younger generation or, you know, whatever, people who are under... 50 or 60 or whatever today has, has been to treat them as juvenile and worthy of immediate dismissal. That's kind of the cultural attitude. Oh God, I'm not, yes. I'm not silly yeah. enough to be yeah. religious. And to me that, you know, that, that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater in the most severe sense, perhaps, because I do think there's, yeah, there's wisdom to the study of how they became established. And there's also wisdom to be derived from each yep. individual tradition. But yeah. I think what, what needs to happen now and again, this seems fairly logical to me. This is the first time we've had kind of a global consciousness, right? Now we have available to us all the traditions that were developed in all places in all times, at least to the extent that they still survive. Doesn't it seem rational that the response to that would be a synthesizing of what's yep. been developed prior to this time into something that's more relevant as being the relevant realization mechanism for the current era? Doesn't that seem like a rational, reasonable occurrence right and to me it does yeah i'm bound to agree with you because i i've made a convergent argument right i think first of all the awakening for the meaning crisis was a deep reflection right i'm gonna i do other series i talk to multiple uh, religious individuals um so yes I, th I i i think my attitude is not dismissal but acceptation what can we exact from the world's traditions um and, and and this is what I mean when I talk about a religion that's not a religion. It's got to be other than how we have conceived of religion, but it's got to have all the functionality that religion always had. Of course, there's going to be universals across religions because they're all trying to balance between home and horror. They're all trying to align the four C's. They're all trying to align uh, the four P's. They're doing all of that all the time, right? And they're trying to enhance the universal process of relevance realization to reduce disconnection, alienation, absurdity, self-deception, and enhanced flourishing, connectedness, seeing deeply into reality. They're all trying to do that, right? Um, 
And so, of course, and, 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 and one of the things we can do is, and don't dismiss the variations. Like, oh yeah, but there's differences. But then ask why. Why does Buddhism go this way and Christianity go that way? What is it in their biological and right cultural environment and the his in their history that led that way? You have to like to understand evolution, even biological evolution, you have to understand the universalities and the variations in an integrated account. That's why Darwin's theory is so powerful. It tells us it, it explains both the universals and the variations. This is how it built. This is how it beat Paley. This is how it beat intelligent design. Intelligent design can only explain, you know, the universal perfections. It can't explain, you know, famously the panda's thumb. It can't explain all the weird, not up, not perfect, weirdly engineered variations. Right? Uh, why do we have this stupid S curve in our spine? Was well, because we evolved out of a quadruped and stuff like that. Okay, so we we, ha we have to do this really carefully, this acceptation. We don't, like the, one of my criticisms of perennialism, the standard one, is it ignores the variation and therefore it gives a lopsided account. Imagine if I only pointed to the universals within evolution, the homologies and the convergent evolution, and I didn't notice all the variation. I wouldn't get the right understanding of what's going on. So it's, we have to do this, re you're right, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater and not throwing out the baby means we have to pay attention to the fact that the baby is both highly integrated and highly differentiated as a baby, mm -hmm. or it wouldn't be an adaptive organism. Secondly, when people say silly religion, I think that response is silly. This is where I'm gonna be a little bit harsh. They of course are deeply religious. Well, what do you mean I'm religious? Well, what are you what are you binding your identity to? What are you devoting all your attention to? Where are you turning for your sense of guidance? What are you therefore? What are you worship? Well, here it is: the internet, your phone. And if you don't think you have a religious attitude to your phone, give it up for three days, fast from your phone, and then tell me after that if you're religious or not, because you are, and you're treating the internet as a god it's an oracle it's everywhere it gives you the info it tells you how you should look tells you how you think tells you how you should feel gives you the narrative gives you all these mythological ways of thinking and you devote yourself to it and you conform yourself to it and you seek self-transcendence through it of course you're religious mm -hmm. you just don't recognize where you are religious because this particular religion is very very good at making itself transparent to you mm -hmm. it's, a, it's glasses you put on without ever realizing that you put them on yeah yeah and I, I think if you as part of a definition of religion you know what do you identify with and yes. how you answer that question is pretty close to what is your religion as you were just saying and, yeah. and i think we, we touched on this before where we said like what if i identify and identify with with the what if I so even subordinate myself? And that may be the ultimate act of, of, of identifying with high, the highest values that I can conceive yeah, of. Yeah. Truth, freedom, love. What if I subordinate myself to them such that me serving them is more important than my own transient yeah. Uh, yeah. benefits yeah. that might accrue to me? And, you know, that's, I think you, we're, we're well into religious language and, and ideas totally. when, we, when we talk about that kind of stuff. And I, I think, you know, that, and that might be the proper way to constitute it, if we can use that word, maybe it's not the right one, but let's just say that whatever we end up identifying with, 
we're going to serve it in some way, right? Because we're, we're basically inherently saying, I'm going to use you, thing that I'm identifying with, to help me determine my action, consciously yeah. and subconsciously. And so exactly. that's why it seems to me that cultures, you know, since the beginning of civilization kind of recognize the propensity or maybe even the unavoidability of that happening and saying, okay, if that's going to happen, we should devote some time to figuring out what are the best ideas or aspects of ourselves to identify with, because it's going to be so instrumental in orienting ourselves. So let's, let's devote a lot of time and, and effort to that. And I, I think that's part of how the religious enterprise emerged and also why it's remained so important. And the, the danger of just saying, oh, what a bunch of nonsense is that, well, something's going to fill that void. And if you're not consciously filling that void, then exactly. perhaps you're going to be led astray. And, and the final point I, I want to make on that is um, when, as that process is, what's the best way to say it? So I think that process is inevitable, right? That, that we're going yes. to, we're going to yes. do that. And how do we, here's, here's how I want to frame it. Is that ultimately a choice? So we, we were talking about, um, you know, the validity of religion in its modern form, and maybe we should be looking at it differently. And, and my, my own personal experience has been that I think there's an element or a, a manner by which you could say, you could consciously say, okay, like I recognize the need of that and I'm going to adhere to X, you know, I'm going to adhere to this yeah. religious tradition because either family or I even has some salience to me. And I think it's a good way of, of orienting yourself in the world. But my experience has been that if you continue to pursue clarity of perception, let's say, because I don't, I don't even want to use the word truth because it's, yeah, it's yeah. more ambiguous. Um, then it seems to me that as I continue to do that, the things that emerge at the top of that identification hierarchy, by virtue of them being quote unquote true, or at least seeming that way to me, they almost compel me to identify with them rather yeah. than, rather than me making a choice, a conscious choice to do so. I'm glad so, you said that. I'm glad you said that's that. That's what those... Go for it. Okay. <laughs> Over this to you. Is really juicy. <laughs> uh, so first of all, um, two things. Uh, religio, that sense of binding yourself so that you transform to conform to it. And by the way, when people have uh, you know, higher states of consciousness, that's how they talk about it. They transform themselves to be more in conformity to the really real. Mm -hmm. um, and so that religio, that binding, um, I think is... It, 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 religio abhors a vacuum. Right. If it, like if you don't have that binding, you're in trouble. Your relevance realization machinery is going askew. And, and, and secondly, deeper. And this is to, to, to make people realize that a, a, an opposition that was given an adversarial relation that was given to religion and rationality isn't ultimately justifiable. I have to be really careful about this. I'm talking about the religio function. Look, it's becoming increasingly apparent that many of the cognitive biases can all be reduced to the my side bias, the ego, a kind of egocentrism in how we process. And, and this is, notice this is at a, a perspectival and a participatory level. It's, a, it's the level of your ability to take perspectives other than your own or not, 
and your ability to uh, understand agencies, form of agency other than your own, right? We talk about this as walking around in somebody else's shoes. Notice how that's procedural, perspectival, and participatory, not propositional. Notice that, right? <clears throat> so the primary thing you need in order to overcome bias is something that takes you out of the gravimetric pull, the super salience of your own egocentrism. Reasoning can't do that. Reasoning works within a perspective. Reasoning may tell you your perspective is flawed, but it is not the mechanism that moves you per between perspectives. You need something that will overcome your egocentrism. What is it? Well, it's these kinds of experiences of love and awe. And these predate us as human beings. You, I, I was just reading a paper about this guy. He was watching a macaque monkey go out onto a ledge and just watch a sunrise occur and just sit there and watch it. Not eating, not having sex, not avoiding predation. Prop, very plausibly, experiencing beauty, wonder, and awe for its own sake. Right? Why? Because those, if you, ask, if you ask people what's happening in awe to draw their sense of self, they say their sense of self is decreasing. Now notice, most experience is, is when your sense of self is decreasing, you're defensive, you get angry, you respond with violence, you counterattack. But in awe, this is, under, this is experienced as inherently good. Because, and we have to be difficult about careful about this. I'm running experiences on all right now, and it's, it's really complex the way it interacts with cognition. It's not as simple as people think, but I won't get into that right now, right? What you're getting, and, and Spinoza got this. Spinoza, who's probably the most logically rash, rigorous philosopher of all time, says that reason can't bring you happiness. You need something. You need what he calls the intellectual love of God. This is just the desire to see reality for its own sake and to love it for its own sake. Right. So insofar as religion inspires love and awe and that meaning, because meaning is to be connected to something larger than yourself, it's also deeply facilitating, facilitating relevance, realization and being rational. You can't be rational until you have a love that overcomes the titanic black hole gravimetric pull of your own egocentrism. And you can't reason your way out of that because reason is working at the propositional level. It's not working at the procedure, I mean, reasoning. It's not working at the procedural, perspectival, and participatory level. So you definitely need that. And that means wisdom is not optional to you as well. You have to do this. You have to, you, like, you, you can't say, I'm not going to try and avoid self-deception and enhance flourishing because your life's just going to tunnel down. Now, what that means, think about this. Think about what this means, John. That means we really have to value, instead of having, how are things relevant to me, we really have to find valuable for its own sake, how am I relevant to reality? Rather than being egocentric, we have to have the capacity in order to be rational, in order to cultivate a response to self-deception, we have to have a capacity to turn the arrow of relevance the other way and ask not how should it conform to me, but how and why should it conform, and to find that inherently valuable, inherently valuable. 
That is to say, you don't choose to turn the arrow. You have to be compelled to turn the arrow. And people say, I don't want to be compelled. Ah, well, here, this is what I say to people. I say, let's, let me rephrase that question. Because what I'm saying is, do you want it so that your thoughts are as much as possible determined by what's true? Your perception by what is beautiful and your action by what is good. Would you like it to be like second nature to you that you, you, your thinking moves towards what's true, your perception towards what is beautiful and your action towards what is good? And they go, well, of course I want that. I'm saying that's exactly right, which means in the end, you want to be compelled by what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. Because if you don't, you're going to be locked into a self-deceptive, self-destructive, self-corrosive egocentrism. You will be imprisoned within right, the dungeon of that egocentrism and suffocating as it slowly encloses around you. Welcome mm -hmm. to what happened to many people during COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're going to lead into that circumstance just in a second, but I'll share with you a uh, um, part of my development when I was younger, you know, I, I realized that, Hey, I have this, let's call it a belief. It might just be a strongly held opinion or something like that, but Hey, it's here. I recognize it in my mind and it, it is compelling me. And there's a power to that because I'm not deciding it. it it's like, it's co-opting me in that way. Right. Because yeah, it's just, yeah. It's what's coming naturally to me, even if it's, let's say, counter to what my own conscious aims might be. And I thought, oh, that's funny. Like, why is that happening inside? And, and then I, of course, I thought, what if I could harness that? What if I could actually believe yes. the things that are best for me or that I, that I actually yeah. want? And so the question emerged in my mind, like, well, how do I cultivate belief? Or is that the right question to be asking? And then, you know, ultimately the answer came, well, seek truth and you'll probably what you'll find is the belief most worthy of cultivating something like that. And yes. that's, that's been very powerful in, in my life because, you know, I won't make any claims to be seen with, you know, total or complete clarity or anything like that, but it seems to be a, a pretty good way of aligning yourself most effortlessly with the things that are most good for you. Something characterized in that way. Totally. So uh, if you'll allow me to play with some words a little bit, they're both Latin words. Religio is this binding, this finding reality and its three dimensions of truth, goodness, and, and beauty, compelling, attractive. And, that, that, and if, we, if we align with them right, right, that affords us ratio, a proper proportioning of our attention. And that's the Latin word for reason, ratio, right? Rationing, ratio, rationality, hear them all together right? Mm. So we get the proper proportioning of our attention and our caring. And this means that religio needs ratio, but ratio needs religio. And what we should have is a, 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 something that allows us to talk about the opponent processing and interdependence rather than pitting them against each other like we do stupidly now. And I think, as I, we talked about last time, I think the Neoplatonism, the Neoplatonic tradition, has a very good track record of being able to bring the language of ratio and the language of religio together and do reciprocal reconstruction between like religion and science and different religions and religion and philosophy and science and philosophy. And so for me, um, I'm trying, and, and I'm using this word the way we've discussed it in depth. I'm trying to exact no nostalgia, no utopia. 
I'm trying to exact as much as I can from Neoplatonism and from other traditions that it was in contact with and could and now can be put in contact with, like Buddhism. That's why I'm so interested in the Kyoto School, the work of Nishida and Nishitani, trying to exact this as much as I possibly can so we can get back to a place where we can talk reasonably about the interdependence of religio and ratio. Mm -hmm. And this makes me think of the, because it seems to be, it was my experience and it seems to be the case from what you just described that this um, continuing to try to enhance your understanding in whichever relevant domains actually helps you constitute that relationship better. You're more able to discern or establish a relationship there. And it makes me think like, and I, I'm not too familiar with your work in the religion that's not a, a religion. I've been concerning myself with awakening from the meaning crisis for the time being, but I will get to it. But but it brings back me to that um, question, like whatever comes next, whatever, if we don't destroy ourselves in the next you know 50 years or whatever, whatever comes next in terms of that mediatory you know, yeah. identifier that, you know, the, 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 the thing that religion has served and maybe that we're lacking to a certain degree now in the modern culture and that you've been working on trying to come to grips with more and understand better. Will it, is it a choice, right? Like it seems to me that if we continue to pursue this process of trying to see with clarity and, and uh, be open yeah. to the unknown and be courageous and all the things we've been discussing, will not it emerge as the most salient thing and we'll kind of graft onto it once again, maybe, and maybe conform it to, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I don't, I I feel like anyone who's asserting a a religion is probably not doing it the right way. I feel like the truth will emerge and it will, even though the process may be messy, maybe we're in one of those periods where the thing that's worked for a few thousand years no longer does. And we're in that kind of dungeon or messy period where the new thing is emerging, but I don't think it will be something we, we may not be able to say, ha, there it is. And that's the thing. Maybe it's a truth, an emergent truth that will just be bestowed, like emerge within us without as much articulation oh, wow. as previously the past. I'm just like, you're just lighting me on fire. Yes. And that's what, <laughs> that's what I mean by no nostalgia, no utopia. Anybody that comes and says, this is the religion, right? Right. That's utopia. And I think mm-hmm. for all the reasons you just articulated, um, it's wrong. The one that said, no, no, we just need to go back to this nostalgia. That's failing to take into account everything we've been talking about. No nostalgia, no, no utopia. Now, here's the thing about choice, right? Um, do you choose what's relevant? Hmm. No, I, it's, the romantics are wrong. I don't just impose it on the world. Do I just receive what's relevant? No, the empiricists are wrong. I don't just receive it. My actions and where I pay attention, right? I participate in it. I don't make it. I don't receive it. I participate in it. And before you go, oh, what are you talking about? Think about the ancient metaphors for faith. They weren't belief. They were sexual intercourse. They were uh, about a loving relationship between two people. Think Think about your friendships and your romantic relationship. Is it a choice? Well, maybe, but if you're not drawn to the person, you can't just, hey, you're gonna be my friend. Right. (laughs) Try that, right? Just try that. That's not gonna work. (laughs) You can't just, you know what I'll do? I'll just wait. I'll wait for friendship and 
a romantic relationship to come for me. Is that going to work? No. When you're when you move into you you move you it's you're participating in it. You're buying religio. You're binding yourself to another person. But there's ratio. There's proportioning, and there's constant co-emergence. That's why I do all this stuff with dialectic entity logos to get people back to talking from the depths of how our cognition and our communication actually works, rather than pretending that we are belief machines trying to destroy other belief machines. Um, so I think my answer is we are going to participate. And I use that as a, a, a verb, almost like precipitate. We're going to participate the emergence of the religion that's not a religion, or that's my name for that. It's my placeholder name for it. And I, right. I state it as a, as a paradox to try and prevent both nostalgia and utopia. Yeah. And I mean, this, we're not the first people to try not to put a name on this thing, right? You look back yes. through history and yes. many yeah. have recognized the pitfalls of, of naming it and being too, yeah. uh, identifying or articulating too much, you know, because, yes. you know, many pitfalls in doing that. You know, funny, another funny anecdote I'll share with you, because, you know, even something like a preference, your preference for pizza, you can decide that it just is what it is, right? You yeah, 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 I like yeah. anchovies, I don't like olives, whatever it is. And, um, you know, when I was I was in an exchange in uh, Japan for a year when I was 18. And, you know, they they have different breakfasts there. And I, I'm there on day one, and they my host family serves me a big cube of cold uh uh, tofu with right. soy sauce over it and i'm like this is disgusting first of all breakfast is supposed <laughs> to be warm i'm used to toast and this is gross um and so i i had an aversion to it as i'm saying i didn't have a preference for it at the time i was also very much into like weightlifting and going to the gym and that yeah. kind of stuff and then my aunt told me that oh you know there's a lot of protein in, in tofu right now D disclaimer my uh, dietary choices have changed since then but at the time you know what i thought is oh protein muscle and so it it ended the preference was changed by the difference in coherence to the values that i had right like yes. i wanted to be muscular protein it's in the tofu okay i can my i can get over my aversion or or actually rather my aversion is automatically transformed by how i'm how my valuation has been changed and so yeah. now i eat the tofu and i lap it up because i'm thinking this is great for one of my ends one of my aims one of my values yeah. Yeah. You, and so and, I, I think this is, that's a yeah. kind of an, a decent analogy to saying like, depending upon what your highest values are, and also the knowledge or understanding you, you can generate about how your experiences and how your perception and how your salience mapping feeds in or relates or coheres to them, that will kind of automatically generate or massage or move your preferences yes. absent your conscious determined uh, determination, let's say. Yeah, and so uh, that's great, John. That's a great analogy. Um, yeah, it's very. I mean, the, the the moment of choice is not. Uh, it's it's necessary, but massively insufficient for bringing about aspiration. This is a point that both Agnes Callard and Elliot Paul make in their respective works. Um, it goes back to Blaise Pascal. People forget. Uh, Pascal's wager. They think Pascal's wager is an argument that's supposed to convince you there's a God. It's not. Go back and read the argument. The point of the argument is to get you to go to church and light a candle. Because only there will you participate in all of the 
rituals, all the serious play of transformation, and that might allow you to participate, precipitate a religio to God. The Pascal's wager was never intended to do that. And, and see, what your aunt did was she gave you, she gave you that moment of aspiration. That, that moment of aspiration. That's like somebody. I don't really like classical music, but I wish I did. I think there's depth and profundity in there. And they take a musical appreciation class where, and this is Agnes Kellard's thing, where they are slowly participating in this reciprocal opening, this mutual shaping of themselves, reorienting what, what they find until eventually you fall in love, listen to the language, with classical music. And that's what I met with the metaphor to how you fall in love with another person. Of course you make choices, of course you make decisions, but they don't make the relationship. They put, they, they, they put you into a situation in which you have afforded the possibility of the relationship emerging. And you, you basically put yourself in a position where it became possible for you, because I'm assuming it didn't happen the first moment you ate that cold <laughs> tofu. It was like, yuck, but, I'm gonna, but over time, and, and, and my partner does that with me. I didn't like blueberries. And she would just try it here, just try it here. You, you know, you're trying to reduce your blood pressure. Blueberries are good for that. And now I like blueberries, but I can't point to a moment and say, you know, that's when I, ah, now I like blueberries. It was like, it's like when you're on the color spectrum and you're looking at red and it's slowly shading and shading. Is it still red? Yeah, yeah. And before you realize it, you're into orange and it's no longer red, but you can't say that's when it became orange. You can't, mm -hmm. you can say, I can see the difference between the two poles. But oh, there doesn't seem to be a clear line of decision. Yeah, I think my own experience, because I was such a crazy person for working out at the time, I was like, oh, you know, like it, it, the value of what I was, the ambition of, you know, being fit and strong so much superseded my immediate tactile or, or um, you know, <laughs> really? perception yeah. of the taste and texture of the food. I was just like, I don't care. I'll eat as much as you want, you know, because right, right. the value was so much more important to me or the, the ambition attached to it was so much more important to me than the actual aversion to the experience. So, so that's good. I mean, you were able to not care how it tasted. What I want to know is, did, did, it, did its taste ever change for you? Did you come to like the taste? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, you kind of have to, right? It's kind well, of- Well, no, you, you don't. Some people can't. Right. So what we have to maybe pay, not have, have to. Yeah. But have, I guess I transform like I, yeah. I recognize the benefit of transforming my preference machinery because I was going to be doing that anyways. <laughs> yeah, I was going to be eating it. But your brain is a good adaptation machine. It won't just go, OK, change salience landscape. Bang. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, wait, all it, you know, I'll, I'll speak on its behalf. I've organized you this way, and there's all these implicit reasons why you're organized this way. I'm not going to change that just because of you, your one little thought thing over here. I'm going <laughs> to like, all right, right. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to evolve that. I'm not going to just flip it into place. Uh, and, and, and so precisely because of that, what we talked, what we talked about at the very beginning, because your personhood is interdependent on your animality, you, you can't just flip a switch. Right? It's not to say that you don't have, you know, uh, you, you don't have, you, your, your person level beliefs and decisions aren't important. I'm not saying that, of course they are. But we also shouldn't underestimate that they are in partnership with processes that aren't about belief and conscious choice. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, and I go back to the metaphor of part, the kind of partnerships we have with friends, with, 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 with our romantic partners, right? Of course, our choices and our decisions matter, but we're in partnership with someone other than, our, than ourselves. And we are both responsible. To, we're not just, I'm not just responsible to her and she is to me. We're both responsible to the relationship. And how it has a life of its own that we have to respect and call, cultivate and listen to. You need to step back sometime. I think, you know, I, I'm, I think I could find good evidence for this. Couples who step back and, and don't talk just about me or you, but talk about us, talk about the relationship. Um, a lot of therapy, by the way, is to just get people to make that a first initial move. Stop, talk, talk, stop talking about Bill. Stop talking about Susan or Tom or whoever you're partnered with. Let's talk about the relationship, the dynamics of the relationship itself and whether or not the relationship is thriving or healthy. And, and we both participate in that. So mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's what I'm trying. This is a Neoplatonic notion. You are participating in the divine and you are participating in the animal. And, and you, this is also in Taoism, heaven and earth, right? You are, you are, you are this amazing optimal grip point between heaven and earth. Mm. Yeah. And this seems to me to be, you know, um, that silly example of tofu seems to be kind of what we've been discussing with the highest, the ultimate value or the notion of God or love. You know, in that, you know, you, we've often heard like the thing that the value that subordinates all other values, right? So the value to me of getting jacked, for lack of a better term, was high, was much higher than uh, yeah. the, 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 the my aversion yeah. to the taste, you know, and I've been thinking about this a, a lot more lately, and I guess for good reason, because it's so fundamental. But, you know, the notion that love conquers all, you hear this in love songs and in religions and all yeah. that kind of stuff seems to be the assertion that love and i realize that's probably a difficult one to nail down or define but love being the highest value if you can really establish a high fidelity relationship with it or really see the value of it or really embody it or integrate it to the utmost degree then that relationship will help dissolve the pain or challenges of all other problems you may be facing. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to oversimplify, but I, I think that's part of the assertion yeah. of, of this enterprise of religion or establishing these relationships with higher values is that that's kind of the sustaining element of them. It's like, if you can increasingly inch closer to the, a higher and higher, but truthful value in a relationship with it, it helps you, uh, deal with all other challenges or relationships you might have some you know something like yeah that. so what cut what what cut what what's coming up in me in response to that is the word, words of saint paul faith hope and love so faith religio binding faithfulness fidelity you know we've been talking about partic- participation reciprocal opening uh, hope aspiration genuinely aspiring and love, especially agape, which is the love that turns the arrow of relevance that way. Because when you have a child, you better turn your arrow of relevance that way. It's not how is this kid relevant to me, it's how am I relevant to this kid. 
right? Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love because love is what turns the arrow around. But you also need the religio and you also need the aspiration. When you have all three with love at the center, you're going to be properly oriented. This is why the Christian virtues, um, faith, hope, and love, are as great as the Greek virtues, wisdom, courage, sophrosyn, and justice. And what we have tried to do for a very long time, because uh, our civilization stands on these two feet, Plato and Christianity, right? And they're deeply interwoven, is we've tried to figure out how to get all seven of those virtues working together. Part of what's happening in our culture right now is this is all breaking down how they all so christian platonism and i again remember i'm not nostalgic but christian platonism was this way of here's how we can take faith hope and love here's how we can take wisdom justice sophrosyn and courage and put them together and integrate them together in a profound way so we have a courtyard where we can talk about the seven virtues mm -hmm. right and that has broken down for us that is broken down to us. Yeah. So, yeah. The, the, so the, 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 the pivot one in, in the Christian virtues is love. The pivot one in the Greek virtues is wisdom. And when you have the proper love for wisdom, you have philosophia. And that's what, you, that's what that sense of, of course, we have philosophy as a technical discipline, and that's fine. But that's philosophia. That's the love for wisdom and the, and the wise loving. I would go so far as to say this. I proposed this on Twitter, in fact. I think all sin is just a failure to love wisely. Can you explain a bit? Think of something that... So what I mean by sin is not just a mistake or not just one immoral act, but a propensity to be find a path of immorality compelling to you so that you're lost, you're transgressing, you're missing the mark, right? So sin is never just a thing right? It's like the arc of the arrow being off, or you're trespassing, you're wandering away from the path, you're getting drawn into, right? So we think about love as this fundamental turning the arrow so that I'm no longer egocentric, but ontocentric, right? I want to be doing that, but what do I need to do that? Well, I need to overcome self-deception. I need to understand how to be connected. I need wisdom. I need to love wisely, but I can't be wise without love because if I don't have love, I'll be, my wisdom will be bound to my egocentrism. Wisdom and love need each other. And when they're working together, then, right, I think we can bring together the Greek virtues and the Christian virtues. But when, when they fall apart and we either try to be wise without love or we love without wisdom, we sin. We fail to love wisely. And that's when we fall away from orienting towards the, what, is, what is the best that is possible for us. Yeah, I, I really like that. And that, um... You know, I've been thinking lately that sin is like serving the wrong God in, this, in, the, in the way yeah. that we've been using it today, which is identifying with the wrong thing, let's say, or yes. like the, a suboptimal thing. So if, if, you're, if you're identifying with purely yourself and your own uh, motivations and your own benefits, let's say, and not a quote unquote higher value, then you're, you, first of all, you're engaging that e egocentrism that you just mentioned. But I, would, I think that that yep. orientation is going to mean that your actions are, well, you know, uh, less sub suboptimal and potentially disastrous. And that is the kind of, that's the sin. The sin is not identifying with the highest value available to you. Right. And notice how Ratio is now here. Because what we're, so God never says love only me, 
right? God says, love me the most, right? God wants a proper, I, I'm, oh my gosh, I'm speaking on behalf of God, right? But <laughs> what I understand the Bible to be saying is, right, um, you want ratio, you want a proper, I'm getting this from Tillich, you want a proper proportioning of your love. Mm. And therefore, another way of saying what I just said, and it might not occur to people, but what I just said about sin, another way of saying it is all sin is idolatry. All sin is to, is to have, the, have a disproportionate love for things, and especially at the expense of loving God. So even a great skeptic like Hume would say, we don't do evil, we don't pursue evil, we pursue a lesser good in place of a greater good. That's how we fall away, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, right, and we can idolatry, we can, we, John Calvin said, and I think he used the wrong term, imagination he said the imagination is the uh, you know a, a factory for the perpetual production of uh, of idols and and the romantics rightly took him to task for that in certain ways but there was a truth in that in that like we so readily fall into disproportionate care and disproportionate loving and we lose the ratio and and so we can make an idol we can make an we can make an idol out of science we we can I, like and I'll, I'll meet people who say I don't have any religion, but their family is clearly an idol. Extended family, like the like they, it's a that's their religion, and they set rituals around it, and it's the highest value, and they and they idolize it, and 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 it's like you want to say, but the family can't always be the highest value to you. There has to be because families can crush individuals, right? They right, and and, and they can insulate you from reality in a profound way. And so Luke has to leave his family, right? Think of the myth, right? There's a caution. Family is really important, but you can idolize it because at some point people have to leave home, right? I'm just trying to use that as an example. We can, yeah. and so yeah. we, and this was Tillich's thing, right? Uh, we should only be ultimately concerned about that which is ultimately real. And that, sh and we should proportion, and that's how he defined faith, by the way, ultimate concern. Ultimate concern and idolatry is when our ultimate concern is for anything other than ultimate reality. We can have non-ultimate concern and we should proportion it. I love my partner. I love my kids. I love my work. I even, I think, I hopefully in appropriate and think of that proportion appropriate. I think in an appropriate way, I love my students, right? And so we should have lots of non-ultimate loves, but we should reserve our ultimate concern, our ultimate love for what is ultimately real. This is Spinoza's the intellectual love of God. And Spinoza has a great point. And think about this, because I'm, I'm wrestling with this a lot right now. Spinoza says the last thing that the, the wise person does is to try to get God to love him in return. And why is he saying that? Because in the end, and Tillich says this too, we could even turn God into an idol mm. if we're reconfiguring the ultimate so that it is for us, we've lost the arrow turning from us to the ultimate, and we're trying to turn the arrow from the ultimate back to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. And it makes a question that comes up is, perhaps with an eternal unavailability of knowing the ultimate uh, good, is it rational or has it been the case that you, you simply reserve the ultimate concern out of a faith that there is an ultimate, like 
you know, like yes. we can't always, we can't yeah. put in place what the ultimate good is. We can't define God, let's say, or at least not perfectly. So is the whole idea of faith is to reserve ultimate concern for that imperfectly knowable or ineffable thing. And, and that's the faith part, because we're saying we're, we're, sub, we're subordinating all of our other concerns, yeah. or all, all of our other capacity for concern to this thing that we don't perfectly know, but we know that, res, that the act of reservation is what helps best orient us. And John, you have just articulated what I was mentioning at the beginning of our discussion. This is the place of learned ignorance, of learned ignorance. That's exactly the horizon. That's exactly it. And this is the, this is the ultimate place you get to in the Socratic Neoplatonic tradition. You're trying to get to that place. You're trying to have that relationship. Um, and so, and Tillich talks about the God beyond the God of theism, which is so Neoplatonic. It's, it's not crazy. It's just crazy. Um, and, and this is back to, right. Um, you know, Eckhart, Eckhart says, God, please free me from God. Right. Or if you see the Buddha on the, on the road, kill him, rich, right. Right. It's, it's a similar kind of idea, which is, but nevertheless, right. You have to meet the Buddha on the road. Right. So, what, you, what, you, what the traditions try to do is they try to have these two, they try to have a genuine appro opponent processing, not adversarial, between a cataphatic. I try to state it as clearly as I can, right? And you and I are doing that, but I have an apophatic. I always am putting this in service to and in reverence towards that which cannot be brought into this speech. The cataphatic and the apophatic are but if if you try to just do the apophatic on the own on your own there's no movement because it's only by like it's the 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 cataphatic it gives you it gives you the path to walk to the to where the macaque monkey is sitting on the precipice and looking in awe but if you don't walk to the path then the apophatic is just is just empty but if you put the two together you're it's like you're, you there's this path that's constantly unfolding it's, 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 it's a weird metaphor. There's a path that's constantly unfolding, but at any place where you stop and look down, you realize that you're in front of a precipice. I feel like this might be um, where the notion, or at least, you know, the, the idea of being humble before God, like, because yes. that, doing that, which you just described, we, we already kind of touched on courage earlier. And I think there's an element of that too, but also there's an element of humility. Like I don't know necessarily precisely what I'm humbling myself to, but I recognize one, that there is something worthy of me humbling myself to it. And the process of doing it requires me humbling myself as to not engage in the egocentrism or the, you know, the yep. total yep. inward uh, pointing perspective that you referred to before. Notice, I think that's deeply right. And notice how the word humiliation has lost its positive meaning for us. And we take it completely from an egocentric perspective as a totally disastrous thing to happen. Humiliation literally means making somebody humble, giving them humility. But we've turned that into a, a purely negative term. That tells you where we're at as a culture. I try to do a practice every day, like it's part of my ecology of practices. Um, I, so I do it almost every day um, in which I go through a stage where I'll say, you know, about the world, there's lots, 
I don't know. It's like pick up an object. I don't know. I actually don't know its mass. I don't know its chemical compound. I don't know its history. I don't know all the ways it can interact with other. Wow, there's so much I don't know. There's so much I, uh, uh, I shall never know because I'm finite. I mean, I'm locked in time and space and history. They may discover things about this rock that I didn't even know were possible. There's much I will not know because I refuse to know because of self-deception. And there's much I can never know because of the inherent limits on my conception, my cognition, my perception, my action. I do that for the external world. I do that for the internal world. And then I resonate them together. And I try to try to deeply remember every day how profoundly I do not know. And, and, that, and I have the figure of Socrates right over there, a nice bust, not, not a bust, a statue. He's looking at me, reminding me of uh, the you know, human wisdom, the, the core of human wisdom is knowing what you do not know. Again, not knowing in this propositional sense. Ivan Illich, Tolstoy story. Ivan Illich always knew he was going to die, the way you, knew, you know that two plus two equals four. But one day he fell and hit his side. And a few days later, it was getting worse and worse and worse. And then he knew he was going to die. The words are the same, but it's a different kind of knowing. He knows it, right? He knows it at the procedural, the perspectival, and participatory level. That's the kind of knowing that you don't know that Socrates is talking about. We all know that we don't know, and then we, mo we move around, right? But you have to actually cultivate this learned ignorance. That, in fact, I like to call it learned ignorance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, <coughs> this dynamic or this circumstance is what often brings me back to the notion of right action or determining right action, you know, on the one hand, you've got that, what you just articulated. And on the other hand, you have not only the necessity for action, but also the potential and possibility for. Yes. Agency. Right. And, and bridging yep. the two. And this, this is kind of why I started off with, with, with culture, because culture is obviously part of the, the, the set of limitations that help you channel your agency through something yeah. in, in a certain yeah. way, a certain means for creation of some kind. Um, so that relationship between the two is, is one that I still think a lot about, I guess. Well, but let, let's talk about it in the language we just used. And let's go back to the distinction between indispensable and necessary. Part of why we need to, and we need to remember this again, the way we need to remember our mortality, like Ivan Illich had to, right? We need to remember that our culture is indispensable to us and it's not necessary, which means we need to remember that our culture can also become an idol to us in a very powerful way, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, I, and, and it is right and proper for people to defend their culture and celebrate their culture just like it's right and proper for people to defend their relationship and celebrate the relationship. But if you make it an ultimate, you turn it into, you try to make it bear the burden of God, which mm -hmm. it cannot do. And one of two things will happen. Well, no, two things will happen. Sorry. Two things will happen in a connected way. You'll actually forget the ultimate God and lose right relationship. And you will also start to crack and fragment that culture because it can't bear the strain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. And I think that's why it's so important that the process of revivifying the culture is always engaged in because it yes. has the, because it, it can, can become so rigid, as you just said, that it negates a lot of potential action, potential thought, potential interaction in many ways, or at least it, it, it 
the conditioning becomes even more strong and the narrowing of perception and relevance and meaning becomes can become so narrow that the type of people that it kind of yep. spits out now there i i don't ever want to place absolute determinism on the culture like people can step outside of the culture it doesn't matter how overbearing it may be but if we're talking in large brushstrokes it can become so rigid that it starts to well you know place people in this dungeon place people in this narrow perception and then I mean, I think ultimately it destroys itself in that way. It eats itself because it's not able to revivify itself in the proper way. I want to add something to this because I think it's, it's something that needs to be made more explicit and clarified. Hating the culture and trying to destroy it are as much a form of idolatry because you are, you are binding it and you're, and you're binding it even more egocentrically, right? So when you hate the culture, right? And I'm talking about something different from criticizing. And mm. critiquing, talking about I, it's just you know, whatever you know. This culture, Western civilization, is just evil and rah rah rah. Right? That's also idolatry, mm-hmm. right? Um, and 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 because you're just you're just binding yourself to it as an ultimate, and then you're, and your relationship to it is completely egocentric. So you're you're simultaneously making the culture an ultimate. The 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 purpose of your life is to destroy the culture, and it's like that's not what we're talking about here. You and I, I hope, are talking about evolving the culture, variation and selection. Some things have to die. New things have to be given birth, right? Um, and so I want to just be really clear. When, when we're talking about idol, idol, making, like, idolizing the culture, that can be, like, that can be both, there's a positive and a negative form of that. You, you can be bound by hatred as much as you are bound by love. This is one of the great things that you know the wisdom traditions keep telling us hatred is not the opposite of love indifference is the opposite to love and it's also the opposite to hatred we've got the wrong model hatred is the inversion of love it's the same machinery it is a profound binding but instead of it being agopic creation it's egocentric destruction but it is still a profound binding of yourself to something it's an idolization that's why and this is the this is you know jesus of nazareth and forgiveness some of your most profound idols are the things you hate the most deeply and if you cannot forgive this is one of my criticisms of christianity well you have to believe in jesus i, I when i read jesus what jesus repeatedly says is this and i'm the christian is going to get angry at me for this so please give me some charity please right <laughs> jesus repeatedly says if you want to be forgiven by god which is get the possibility of right relationship with God, you have to forgive other people. He repeatedly says that. And I think he's wise to say that because as long as we are hating other people, we are bound, we are turning them into idols and we are bound to them in a way that severs the possibility of right relationship to what is ultimate. Totally agree. And, you know, this is why, well, as we said in the last, um, discussion how the culture being founded on wisdom and virtue or at least having those conversations that can constantly refine those ideas and how they should be imbued into the culture is of the utmost importance and i hesitate to ask you this with 10 minutes left in our conversation but you know one of the (laughs) things that i think about a lot and the the overly simplistic I hesitate to even use it as an example because there's probably a lot of holes that can be poked in it. But the, the overarching question is, 
how should we define progress mm. as, as a culture, as a global culture, et cetera? Because I think a lot of people would look at moder modernity, say we have iPhones and Netflix and airplanes. And so, of course, we're better off than Minoan Crete 4,000 years ago. Whereas if, you know, if I kind of look at it and say, well, you know, maybe they lived, the average lifespan was 20 years less, but they seem to live in a nice environment. And maybe they had, um, maybe they had a, a more properly constituted relationship with the divine kind of things we've been discussing already. Maybe they had more meaningful relationships with each yeah, other as yeah, a result. Yeah, um, yeah. So by what metric are we determining progress today? Because I think largely speaking, one of the reasons why we're so willing to dismiss a lot of the traditions and wisdom along with it of the past is under a narrative of, of progress. progress. We're just, yeah. oh, we're progressing along. So we don't need to worry about that stuff that was developed before because we're, we're good, baby. But if, you know, I think a lot of people are beginning to wake up and realize, well, if you look at a lot of the different elements of yeah. culture and life today, and I think this is, you know, primary to your, 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 one of your major pieces of work is awakening from the meaning crisis, you know, so that it seems to be, there's a lot of things bubbling up under the surface that are, that are signaling, hey, things aren't so okay. And this progress narrative may not be as legit as you think. And so I'm, I'm curious to know yeah. how you so, define progress and culture's role in it. So progress, we ultimately get it from the Zoroastrian uh, Judeo-Christian heritage and the idea of uh, the better future um, and that we can ch uh, change the future. I want to keep the idea of the open future, but I want to reject any of the utopia. If you really deeply understand evolution, and I ask you, but what's the final form of life? What's the final form? <clears throat> and you go, what? You're, you shouldn't ask that question. There's no final form. That's the point of evolution. There is no final form. It's not trying to get somewhere. There's no, it's not progressing. Are, 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 is there, you know... It, is the evolution of evolvability happening? Is evolution making? Yes, definitely. There's there there there's that. But if, is there a final form? It's like ah, that doesn't make sense to me. It's not even a good question to ask. Um, so, and I, I want to say this very carefully. I mean, so I'm, I'm using the terms very philosophically. The liberal idea, which came about in the Enlightenment, the liberation idea is that we can, we can use science and reason and liberate ourselves, and, 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 and then we will fulfill uh, the Judeo-Christian, the Zoroastrian Judeo-Christian mandate uh, to progress to the final form of human existence. So I reject that. I reject there being a final form. I think culture, cognition, and biology are evolving phenomena, and there isn't a final form of them. And, and, and to think that there is, is to have a kind of hubris and, and to ignore Sellingbeck's point that the, believing that we've got the answers to these ultimate questions, I think is hubristic and immature. Um, so I think it's better to think of it evolving. Uh, and so I think I, I, I try to argue not for closure, uh, but for continuity of contact. If you try to say to, in your relationship, we're done, we've reached the final point, let's just stay here. That's the end of your relationship. You will strangle it and kill it, right? If you say to your kid, that's it. Don't mature anymore. You're done. You, you're going to destroy your kid's life, right? 
Uh, right. And, and if we ever, if we ever want to rest on, ah, I'm wise, I'm wise. There we go. You're done. You're now onto the dark path of foolishness. Mm. Um, so I don't think we should be invoking the notion of progress anymore. I think we should be invoking the notion of adaptivity. Um, and again, the idea that everything we propose will ultimately die and is defeasible, but what we're trying to do is to right, exact. Evolution, is, evolution doesn't throw everything away. You still have machinery that was evolved a billion years ago inside of you. Evolution doesn't throw away, it exacts and exacts and exacts and exacts. We, it has continuity with, from the past, but it also has radical innovation. That's exactly neither nostalgia nor utopia, right? You're not a single-celled organism, but you still have mitochondria in you, right? You're a complex organism, and so you can do things that the single-celled organisms never could, etc. Does that mean you're the final form? No, there's still all kinds of single-celled organisms out there. And you depend on them still existing. You see what I'm trying to say? The linear model and the completion model and the perfection model, this is one of the things I reject, is some interpretations of Plato as is a, is a, is a, is a, is a, a kind of perfectionism. I reject perfectionism. And so in this sense, and only in this sense, I'm more like a philosophical conservative in the sense that we are always in trade-off relationships. We'll gain this, but we'll at the expense of that. We're always, and we've been talking about it throughout, we're always trying to optimally grip between all these opponent forces and factors. And there is no final resting place for that. Does that mean they're all, that all positions are equally good? No, most positions are not optimally gripped. It means that there's probably a very few things that right now are optimally gripping. So it's not, it's not a free-for-all, it's not relativism but it's also not perfectionism. Try to give up relativism and perfectionism, right? And so, I, I, John, I, I'm not trying to be a, a poor guest, but I, I, I'm sort of, I want to reject the question. I, 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 I think the question, you know, what is progress is like, what's north of the North Pole? Uh, it sounds like a question, but if we really think about it, it's, we're, we're assuming a, a picture that is not correct. Like, like yeah. Wittgenstein's yeah. famous, what time is it on the sun? And when people think, oh yeah, what time is it on? That makes no sense. Time is relative. Like what time it is, is where you are on the earth. So there mm -hmm. is no what time it is. Think, like really, just think about it. There's no, what time is it on the sun? And you can get sort of caught up in that. And then you realize, oh, right, 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 right. It's the question shouldn't be answered. It should be dissolved. There's certain questions that should be dissolved. I think Wittgenstein is wrong. I don't think all philosophical questions should be dissolved, but I think he was right in that there are some that should be. I want to propose to you that what is progress is a question we should dissolve rather than trying to resolve it. Fair enough. And I, I, I want to just briefly explain the, the genesis of it, and then we'll, we'll wind this down. The first was obviously just that uh, the, the narrative of progress obviously allows us to probably more... or to uh, dis what too easily dismiss the lessons of the past, let's say. Yes, and I, yes, I think yes, so, yes. So it, a type of arrogance around that. And so I think that's one reason that dissolving it would be good. Where it was coming from, from me, and this your response may still apply, but just I want to reiterate just so that I'm being clear. Yes, please. Um, I think throughout this whole discussion, we've been kind of dancing around, talking about trying to identify like 
the some of the most important means of orienting ourselves, right? And yes. the reason why yes. that's our enterprise is because that's what fills us with the joy and grace of existence, for lack of a, yes. a, a better term, right? And that's well yeah. maybe that's the best thing to be doing with our time is to try to orient ourselves or identify with the thing that delivers that the most that is possible in this reality. Um, and maybe that's been the case of the, the cause of religion, et cetera, et cetera, as we've been saying. We've also been identifying that culture helps us. And that's a relationship, to, to be clear. That's yeah. an ongoing relationship. That's not an endpoint. Yeah. And culture has been helping us to uh, avail of language, ideas, symbols, relationships, context that perhaps it seems is allowing us to refine that relationship to a certain degree, increase the fidelity of that relationship, help us orient yes. ourselves better and better and better and better. Yes. Um, and so when I talk about progress, and I guess the reason why I bring up the Minoan example is, to me, that's progress. To me, progress is increasing the fidelity of that relationship yes. such that over time we're oriented better. And it, oh, it would, seem, good, it, it would seem that culture plays a role. However, it's not the passage of time doesn't de facto mean that culture is playing an increasingly important role in the establishment of that yeah. relationship, because it may, uh, yeah, it may yeah. certainly be the case yeah. that 2000 years ago, that relationship, even though they had, let's say, less uh, symbology and language available to them, perhaps, or ideas to contextualize it, we've gone off course. And so even that's the case, we may not be as that relationship as a culture, yes. broadly speaking, may not be as properly constituted now as it was once then. And so if we agree that that relationship is the most important aspect of life, then our ability to constantly improve upon its mediation or fidelity seems to me, if I was to define progress as individuals and as culture, uh, to be yes. probably the thing that we should be looking at. This is great. Okay. Now, I think You've, you, this is very helpful. So I want to invoke a distinction that Keeks uh, invokes uh, between an ideal and a, a goal. Um, so a goal is a state that you're trying to realize, and it is completion. That is, a, by the way, the original meaning of perfect, uh, is to bring to completion. Um, and, and that was also part of the Christian narrative. The whole story was going to come to completion, an end point. Um, and that's the part I'm trying to leave aside. And that's very adjectival, just to invoke an earlier distinction. But an ideal is adverbial. It's not where you're trying to go. It's how you're always doing whatever you're doing. So Keeks talks about, you know, you can have a goal of, I want to get tenure. And you work towards it, and then you complete it, and the goal is done. But honesty is not a goal. Honesty is an ideal. It's a way in which I'm always going to be doing everything, Right. And, insofar, and, and that's what I was trying to get at with the notion of continuity of contact. Like, I'm, I always want to be in right relationship with my partner, but I'm not trying to say this is how, this is where the relationship is going in the sense of I'm trying to drive it towards this state. I'm trying, and I want to, in that sense, I want to fall in love with reality. I want to, I want, I can make, if, if you'll allow me to bend it, I, I think we can progress adverbially in the ideals but that bring us into a continuity exactly. of contact. So we have fidelity of right relationship. Yes, that I agree with. But, and I, I think that's fundamentally right. I think in fairness to me, that is not typically 
how the notion of progress has been understood in the West. Sure, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's why I asked you what your kind of what your definition was, because right, I think right, it's right. been, well, the current broad, the current broadly accepted definition, I don't think it's serving us very well. Let's just put it that way. In fact, I would then still dissolve the question and I want to replace the word. I want to replace it with what is fidelity? What is right relationship? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think part of your enterprise and as we discussed, like how we constitute or improve the ongoing becoming of a culture is asking that question is, is yes, pursuing yes. the conversations and the dialogue that allow us greater clarity on that question. And if we can do that and, and increase, we can define, we have to define it, but increase that, that relationship, the fidelity of that relationship, then that would seem to be evolution, if not progress of what we're able to experience here. But there's another word for the increasing of fidelity and right relationship. And the word is love. That's the word we should be talking about. I guess we'll leave it there for today. Yes. <laughs> I loved being here. Thank you very much. Me John. too. Me too, John. This was excellent. Uh, thank you so much. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch and maybe put, the, put another one together when the time is right. I would, I would love that. Thank you very much. All right, John. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.